Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week, I'm joined by Ian Holmes. He's the founder and owner of Coastal Local Seafood. Uh, so it's spelt a couple different ways. So Coastal Local or Coast 2 Local. Uh, and Ian gets into the naming of it on the podcast too as well and why there's kind of two different names and everything. But if you go to their Instagram, it's Coastal Local. Uh, their website is coast2localmarket.com. So there's a little bit of a difference there. Just keep that in mind when you're trying to look them up later on. But like I said, Ian is the owner and founder of Coastal Local. They are a seafood purveyor and distributor. Uh, they have two locations, uh, retail locations in both the North Markets. The one in Bridge Park in Dublin is the newest. And then that one actually opened, I think, uh, slightly before the one downtown, which they took over for the Fish Guys, which closed during the pandemic. So you can find them both locations. They have a small menu lobster rolls, shrimp rolls. They kind of do some specials uh, too as well, oysters. And then they also have seafood items to go. So they have anything from frozen shrimp to, you know, fresh fish, lobsters, crabs, like whatever's kind of in season. So we kind of get into all that stuff with Ian on the podcast, how he got started in his career and everything, how he goes about partnering with different fishermen to bring in the catch and the product that he gets, how it's all kind of organized and shipped different parts of the country, future plans, expansion, all that kind of stuff. So it's a really interesting episode. I really wanted to have someone on who's kind of in the seafood business. I really enjoy seafood. I know there's a lot of people, especially here in Ohio, that don't just because they either had a bad first experience or never really had high quality seafood. And it's tough to find in landlocked states uh, because, you know, the shipping and now you're getting into inflation prices and everything like that too. Plus overfishing for some items can lead to lower quality just because everything becomes priced out too. So there's a lot that goes into it. So it was super interesting to sit down and have a conversation with Ian about how it's all organized, where things are headed, and just how he got started and why he's doing what he's doing. So like I said, you can follow them on Instagram at Coastal Local Seafood. Check out their website. It has menus and additional items for both locations. Like you said, if you're interested in signing up for either bringing their product into your restaurant, you can reach out to them directly. They also do kind of the at-home delivery too as well. So if that's something that you're interested in, feel free to reach out to them through their website. You can follow us on Instagram at SpoonMob. Check out our website, SpoonMob.com. Make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your podcast from. But without any further delays, here's my conversation with Ian Holmes, the founder and owner of Coastal Local Seafood here in Columbus, Ohio. Cool. Thanks again for agreeing to come on the podcast. I know you're a busy guy uh, with fish deliveries and basically two restaurants that you're running uh, right now inside the North Market. So I think I first kind of encountered you guys like most everybody did. You know, you guys took over for the fish guys in the North Market kind of during COVID and you were kind of the new seafood purveyors on the block and everything. And and then you guys slowly expanded to actually having a small menu uh, at both locations. And I think now you might even have an oyster bar officially at the location at Bridge Park. And I want to get to all that stuff that you got going on and future plans. But I always like to start at the beginning with everybody. How did you kind of first get into the seafood business, you know, was that something that you grew up around or how did that all kind of come together? I always enjoyed seafood. I mean, I come from a lower middle class family, so seafood wasn't exactly on the menu often. About 11 years ago, I was playing music in a band and looking for a side gig. So I took a, a job driving a truck for another seafood company. And the more I got into it, the more I enjoyed it. And it was kind of the start of the boom of the farm to table era. And I, I was looking at the way we were doing it with some logistic help here. 
I could do the same thing, getting the stuff from the ocean to your table instead of putting it in a warehouse. I split off on my own nine years ago and never looked back. I mean, I've been doing yeah, the wholesale gig for yeah, nine years now. And then we uh, kind of lucked into these North Market things uh, with everybody. It's been a lot of pivoting on the fly here and figuring things out. But I mean, we're surviving <laughs> somehow. Did you grow up in Boston? Are you a Boston guy or... I just grew up a Red Sox fan. It works out nicely. I get to go to Boston and back a couple of times a year. But I, I mean, in the beginning, I was going to Boston every week because I would go out there to the docks and figure out what was coming in, bring it back and distribute to my handful of restaurants that I worked with. Now, I mean, for the last, I don't know, five or six years, I have a company that picks all the stuff up on the dock for me because we have enough weight coming in. So I work with some fishermen out that bring it into the pier in Boston. We, uh, we deal with... A plus product that comes in that day and it's in Columbus on the menu that next night, which is pretty incredible. Yeah, I grew up out in Massachusetts. So Cape Cod, my sister lived outside of Boston for a while. She's back on the Cape and there's some family in the the Framingham area and everything. So very familiar with uh, a lot of stuff that goes on there. But yeah, I didn't know if you were originally from Boston. If you wanted to start dropping R's on the podcast, you know, we could do that. It annoyed the shit out of my wife. But where are you from originally? Just south of Columbus. Did you ever work in like a restaurant at all, like growing up or anything? Or my extent of the seafood industry was I working at Long John Silver's in high school. <laughs> and honestly, the the uh, prepared side of what we do now is way beyond my <laughs> experience level. I brought in people who knew how to cook. I've been in restaurant kitchens for yeah for a better part of a decade now. So I've met a lot of people that do this and become friends with. And as, a, as we were going on to this, I, the fresh side of it is what I know. The prepared side of it, I brought in some people that knew what they were doing. I have input, but I just that's not my forte by any means. Before you wind up being a delivery driver for the seafood distributor, nobody really, I don't think, aspires to be a delivery driver. So like, where were you thinking like you were going to wind up you know, career-wise before that? I thought I was going to be a rock star. The delivery thing, I, I mean, it was just kind of... I mean, I was a weekend warrior. I was playing Thursday, Friday, Saturday. If I could make some money during the week, I had a kid on the way and I was trying to uh, balance that. And then once once I got into it and yeah, and kind of built a passion for where the stuff is coming from and getting excited about what I'm doing and being able to access these products that people in the middle of the country don't have access to, I, I kind of, the light bulb went off fairly quickly. and like, this could be something. This could be a career. And then. Uh, after baby number one, the rock star dream kind of goes out the window. With your band, like what kind of music, what kind of style were you guys? It was like pop rock. We would do covers for, we would do weddings and it was fun. But when I look back on it, like we weren't even close to being famous. I had another guy on the podcast, Tyler Stemmer, who's down in Cincinnati. He had a band for like a long time and he was always like in between the food industry and then the, the music thing. And it was just, eventually it was just like, what am I doing? It's like, I don't want to be at a bar at like 3 a.m. When you're doing this delivery driver stuff, how did you first wind up with them? Was it just, they were just hiring people and it was like... Yeah, it was like a Craigslist post. Yeah, I just took a job two days a week driving seafood around. Being in the kitchen, I mean, it was exciting. I would go in there and see people let me try what they're doing. And I I mean, I pretty much get along with everybody. So I made a bunch of friends right away that were all in kitchens. And then they would reach out to me about things they were doing. What What's coming in that's exciting? What can you get me to do this? And then that's kind of how I got the wheel started turning. Like I could do this on my own. All I need is 
I need a couple refrigerated trucks. It was more of just being in the kitchens a couple days a week, delivering stuff that kind of, it was exciting. I mean, I'm, I'm a foodie. I have my wife and I have been foodies for a while now, but I mean, that, that was kind of the beginning of it when I was seeing people in scratch kitchens and making everything I've done for the last decade has been mom and pop and people who care about their product. I mean, I've never been in any kind of chain restaurant or anything like that. It's, It's, I see the product and then the chef sees the product. It's kind of my spiel that I've never had anything sent back because nothing is bad because I see it first. (laughs) Yeah, you do the QA before it even reaches them. But I know like the story kind of goes when you're working with that distributor or working for them, you know, they were operating on like a first in, first out inventory basis. Exactly. Yeah. You warehouse it. Yeah. And it's the same thing as for companies now. You're getting their oldest piece of fish, obviously. They want to move it. They're buying in giant bulk because they get a better deal on it. You might pay a little bit more for me, but you're never going to throw it away. It's normally at least three days fresher than it's coming out of a warehouse. There's a lot to that. There's some chefs want to order at nine o'clock at night for the next day. And that works when you have a warehouse full of fish, but that doesn't work with me because I have to get it out of Boston for the next day. It's a give and take. There's definitely been people who this isn't for me. I don't know what I need for tomorrow. It's it's too hard to forecast. And I totally get it. I mean, it's it's more for the... Yeah, for the mom and pop restaurants that pretty much know what they're going to go through on a weekly basis. And I've always likened it to a, like an episode of Chopped where they uh, they just come up with a set and then I'll show up with the freshest fish and then they have to make a dish out of it for the weekend. Did you do any like market research or like test your idea of copying their model, but switching it up so it became that fresh dock to table, dock to kitchen kind of deal? In the beginning, I just started that I found scallops that I could get into town that no one had ever seen them that fresh before. So I'm a terrible salesperson with a really great product. So it was easy for me. I would get a gallon of scallops and just drop them off. Try these. Let me know what you think. And I would instantly get a text or a call. <laughs> Holy shit, how do I get these in my restaurant? I'm like, yeah, well, wait till you see this mahi that I can get from Florida. Wait till you see, like, it spiraled that way. The more I look back on it, the, I got better response from being a guy in a hoodie and a hat than the sales guy with the briefcase that comes in and tells you what he needs to sell that day. It was easier for me to connect with these people that are more like-minded to me than they are. The old guy who's been doing it for 30 years that tells you this is what you do and this is how you do it. I would rather work together with you. What do you want to do? Let's work together. Let's promote this and whatever you want to do. Do you want to do a weekend special? You want to do oysters? Let's do it. Yeah. Let's help each other out here. Now, I know you said primarily, you know, starting out, it was mom and pop's but on the other side of that too, with kind of building your relationships with the fishermen, were you able to leverage the relationships you already established as a delivery driver? Yeah, absolutely. The thing is the guy who's sweeping the floors, he start he becomes a line cook and then he becomes a sous chef. And so I've I mean, I've always treated everyone with respect and kindly. And I I'm great at remembering things about people's lives. So the line cook whose girlfriend was pregnant, when I come back in, he hasn't been out. Remember that? And then they remember me for doing that. So when they become the sous chef, when they're doing the ordering, where they move on to the next restaurant, they tell, hey, there's a guy, he's a really nice guy that has really great product. (laughs) I've built most of my career on that is just being nice to everyone (laughs) in the restaurant industry. And it pays off tenfold. So when you get to a point where you start adding new clients that you don't have a relationship with, like, how did you go about that? Was it just kind of showing up with product in hand, like, hey, try this or introducing yourself or... A lot of the times 
they've heard about me from somewhere else. Or that, so it makes it easier. But cold calling is god awful. I hate it. I don't want anybody to tell me what I need to buy. I mean, I go in with that attitude. That's that's where the the product in hand comes in handy. Like, I know you already get scallops and you're happy. Just try these for me. I promise. Yeah, cold calling is a it's an awful sport. When you started your own business, originally it was called Coast Two Local. Now, originally it was Coastal Local Seafood, and that's still what the wholesale is called. What a nightmare that's been. <laughs> I mean, if I'm allowed to go into it, I'll. I'll give you the details. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, I've done wholesale for yeah, 10 years now. And I started these, the retail markets were kind of just on a whim, uh, just because it was opportunistic. But so I just went with the same name. And then a company called Fortune Fish out of Chicago owns a retail stand in Minneapolis in in St. Paul called Coastal Seafood. And they told me I have to stop using that or I have to buy all my product through them. So. I obviously am not going to buy their products secondhand. So I tried to battle with them for a little bit, but they're a, like a billion dollar company and I'm like a thousand dollar company. So it ended up just being easier to change it. And it's really not, we're still the same people doing the same thing. It really didn't matter. I didn't have to change the wholesale because I was a separate entity or whatever, but it's just the corporate America thing that if you have more money than somebody else, you can twist their arm. Like you said, you didn't have to change the, the name too much. You just had to basically put a two in the middle, <laughs> kind of, you know? kind of like sticking it to them like if you say it fast enough it sounds exactly the same still no yeah and people still post like you know there'll be stuff on like the reddit boards or every once in a while somebody be like where can you get fresh fish or great fish or whatever and usually coastal local comes up in there and yeah you see it different way you see coast to local and then coastal local both ways so it still drives me crazy that you know, I have to own all three websites now and then to make them all merge to one it sucks for branding but it is what it is I mean yeah we're still doing the same thing Hopefully it was early enough in the game that now we'll be from here on out, we'll be fine. When you started out, though, you were driving all the way to Boston, halfway to Boston? In the beginning, yeah, I was driving all the way to Boston. Then we got enough where I had somebody meet me halfway, Erie, Pennsylvania. And then, yeah, the more weight you get, uh, I guess the less per pound it costs you to get somebody to, to drive it. So, yeah, now the company picks it up on the dock and brings it to me three times a week from Boston. We get two... Florida deliveries a week and three Boston deliveries a week. And then we'll get some air freight from Louisiana whenever it's, there's requests, whenever crawfish season or, I mean, we'll get stuff out of Virginia. We'll get soft shells, that kind of stuff, blue crab out of Virginia. But for the most part, I would say 90% of our business comes from Boston and from Miami. You start out originally in Boston, but then like you're saying here, you expanded to parts of the South and stuff. How did you do that? Obviously, it's face-to-face relationship is how you establish everything in Boston. It was funny that I met some truck drivers that were going routes. So they would grab, get stuff in Boston. They would drive it across. They would pick up stuff in Miami and bring it back up. And I got to meet those guys. And they gave me connections down there who, who to order from there. In Florida, there's kind of unique things that they do down there where the fishermen on the boats, they own the trucking company as well. So when you call down there, you say, oh, they whatever you have coming in, they just add on however many cents per pound and they'll take it from a boat to a truck to you, which is awesome. Do you ever go down and like visit just to like QA, QC, the operation? I'm going in May, actually. Actually, when this is coming out, I'll be down there that weekend. Some new stuff going on, that some new an oyster plant that I want to check out, make sure that it's up to our standards. What do you look for? Like, what's your inspection process like? Because, I mean, obviously you do it firsthand. 
So, I mean, I tell everyone that we do an A-plus product that is not always available. It drives people crazy sometimes. We won't always have tuna at the stand. We won't, I won't always have tuna for restaurants available. I only have it available when it's number one and it came in that day. I won't bring in a B product to dumb down or to just to have something all the time. We do A plus or nothing is how I've always gone about it. When you go to the, like the different fishermen or the different sites or whatever, are you specifically looking to see how they catch the fish? Yeah, exactly. There's a few processes that can be harmful that I that stick away from. Like when they drag for scallops, sometimes they'll it tears up a lot of the ecosystem there. There's really not a true diver scallop anymore. There's not it's not uh, cost effective for the divers or for anyone else. So what I try to do with draggers is buy I'll buy their bycatch as well. I'll get skate wing from them or I'll get monkfish or other bottom things that they pick up along the way to try to make that more eco-friendly instead of they waste that the fish that they're dragging. There's also like when it comes to local fish in the Atlantic there, we uh we try to use day boat, which is means they only go out for 24 hours. And if they're dragging a net for 24 hours, you're getting that fish back in and then to us that next day. There are boats that go out for seven days at a time. I try to explain to people that whatever that first catch they hit when they first start has been in that net and drowning and dead by the time, you know, it's, it's been dead for a week by the time it gets back. It has been, it's been in tempered waters, but it is, you're not getting a true uh, catch for straight from the boat, like a day boat would be. With that scenario too, as well, even if they're out for a week and they pull up their lines once a day, they're still putting all that stuff on ice. So it's still, even though it's in ice in the hold, it's still been out of the water and dead for, you know, five days. Talking about the day boat stuff. Do you always fresh, never frozen kind of deal? Yeah, a lot of it. There's some stuff that you can only get so far out that they freeze it whole on the boat and then come back and cut it as much as I can. There's nothing that goes on our retail stand other than some golf shrimp that everything else that goes on our stand is yeah fresh, never frozen. And then once it goes from our stand, if it sits there for a couple of days before the new stuff comes in, then it goes into soups and sandwiches and that kind of stuff. So we can keep rotating. Do you ever tell any of the boat captains like what you're kind of looking for? Like it's supposed to be in season, like we would like this, but I mean, obviously you take whatever they come up with within reason. They kind of have an idea. What I do... I'm not reinventing the wheel, so they kind of know what these market people are looking for. Yeah, at the beginning of the week, we're going to harpoon swordfish this week, right? You want to get the best of the best. This is what we're going after this week. Or Alaska, you'll get these uh, Inuits up there. We'll drill holes to, they'll catch Arctic char there. You can only get it a certain time of year. You'll get an update about that. When they go out to do scallops in Georgia's bank, that's your prime where you want your scallops from. You'll kind of get a heads up from those guys. This is where we're going. This is what we're doing. Keep your eye out for this. We're landing bluefin tuna this week. If you're interested, you know, that kind of stuff. Like what they'll give us kind of kind of a, the market update of what they're seeing. You said I think 90% or so of your fish comes from the Atlantic and the Boston area. How do you compete against those restaurants that are already there? They're local. They obviously want same day fish too as well so like how do you navigate you know you got all these local people that are competing for the same thing that you want yeah they all hate us because the fishermen make more money off of us that we get first dibs they can get a license to go to the fish auction and get stuff there but a lot of times they hate us when we come into the to town to uh make connections they they get upset that they're not first on the list of 
the, a lot of times those places out there either have their own boat or have a connection with a boat that will get them what they need. In the open market there, they kind of, they take a back seat to, to uh, these people that are taking it to the middle of the country. So do you partner specifically with any like individual fishermen too, as well, independent operators or anything like that too? On the pier there, there's some, some bigger companies that, that contract those people there. So that's when I would go out there, I would walk the dock and talk to those people. So they bring in, instead of going to individual boat and say, I'm still a small player in the game. I mean, I don't probably have 40 restaurants or something that I do. Instead of going to each individual boat and saying, I need one tuna from you. I need that. So they all bring it into this, to a big uh, landing area there where they ice it all down. And I, so I would go to them and say, hey, can you grab me 20 pounds of cod and a, a tuna, you know, all the stuff that I need from that instead of individual, but these are all individually contracted boats through that company, but not through me. So is there anything that you encounter in terms of, because everything's seasonality and then based off freshness too, as well, is there anything that no matter how hard, like you try, like people just don't want it? Yeah, there's all kinds of stuff. I learned in the beginning that I'm always trying to save the world and I'm trying to get the invasive species and sell them. But as soon as you put a lionfish on a menu that never moves, you put there's those Asian carp down on the Ohio River and down into Kentucky now that are eating everything. We're catching those and we're trying to do fun stuff with them to make it a foodie thing. And it's never caught on. There's some stuff that I can't move. I know with like the lionfish, they go and like they spear fish them. Cause basically the story with all that is people in Florida had these aquarium tanks. They have lionfish as pets or whatever. And then hurricanes or whatever roll through their aquarium breaks those fish get flushed out to sea and they have like no real natural predators so they multiply and then they're destroying like you know the reefs and stuff down there but there's videos you can find where they go down there and it's basically they have a handgun with a spear on it and then they're you know spear fishing them essentially and you know i've heard that like they're good if you like deep fry them the hipsters got their hands on them down there and then the price went outrageous which is another problem we're all trying to do the right thing by sucking them all up and eating them but then they became popular yeah i didn't know it caught on yeah the price went outrageous so in the middle of the country where nobody knows and or cares that they're not going to pay 30 dollars a pound for lionfish i was watching something and they were talking about i think it was either kampachi or hamachi i don't remember which one but basically 20 years ago like Nobody in America really wanted that fish. Like it was always going over to Japan. And then people kind of discovered, you know, oh, this is a really delicious fish. Then it became popular. Now you can pretty much find it on most menus. So it's always kind of the game of finding the populace. You know, fish, there's a lot of it out there, but nobody really knows about it. Are you always trying to figure out like what's the next thing? Yeah. I mean, and I've struck out a bunch of times too, that kind of stuff. Doing it more now that I have these two retail stands where I can present stuff in front of people and talk to them about it. it was, that's easier than showing up to a restaurant because if they love it and I don't have enough of it right then to show them, or if they hate it, then I have too much of it that I don't have anywhere to go with it. You know what I mean? Uh, having the retail stands has helped us be able to, I mean, we put, we'll put a handful of parrot fish out there and it's instant conversation. I mean, well, people will line up to ask us questions about, because I've never seen anything like that before or ribbon fish or just anything that, is a conversation piece and it gets people eating stuff they've never tried before and they come back and say, why do we never, I've never seen that on a menu before. Why was that not in Columbus? That kind of thing. So with that education component, 
do you guys also, you know, help them with somebody's like, oh yeah, there's fish I never heard of. I'd be interested in trying that. Like, do you help them with recipes? Kind of like, well, a good way to prepare it is this, if you do this, this, and this to it. Exactly. Yeah. And downtown we have that, the spice guy there, North Market Spices. He has a, a lot of options. He actually is, is a good resource to bounce stuff off of. We have a, an oily fish. Uh, what, what should we use on that? Should we should we bake it? Should we whatever? You know what I mean? It helps that we have that we're in a, a local grocery store there. Like, like in, we can send them. We'll tell them how to bake it and how to cook it or how we like to do it. But there's also take take this piece of fish down there and ask Ben what he would do with it. And it's, it's cool. It's a good environment. Is there a fish or, or something that everybody wants so much of that you just can't get it anymore? Or it's super limited in the amount that you can get? The one thing that hurts my soul that we sell is Chilean sea bass because it's going to be gone in our lifetime, but people want it. So it's kind of, you play that game of, of uh, capitalism or, you know, do you sell it and make enough money to keep the stand open or do you not sell it and go out of business? We sell a fair amount of Chilean sea bass and just, it, because it, it is the best fish. I mean, it, it tastes the best. There's no, nobody uh, denies that. I just, I try to do it on a limited basis for responsibility reasons, sustainability reasons. I mean, I know that those are key words that people use that don't always follow, but at least I'm putting it out there that I do it with a, a deep guilt <laughs> on putting it out there. Overfishing is a big thing because a bunch of cities outside of America that really depend on the fishing industry. I mean, most of any coastal places in Africa, India, you know, even China and stuff too, so they're constantly fishing and you, and you see all this stuff too as well. But how do you kind of balance that with like knowing that there's like overfishing, but they are trying to do some farm stuff too as well? Yeah. Well, my biggest thing right now is educating people on these, on some of these farmed fish that they've been told that you don't eat. You're not supposed to eat these farmed fish for so long. And there's be- these beautiful farms doing things the right way. There's, I mean, they're having 95% uh, water and 5% fish. They're eating non-GMO. They're eating no uh, hormone feed. They're being bred in open ocean with parasite eating fish. So they're not, they don't have to give them any kind of medicine or anything to, so they're growing naturally raised by any other standard. And people, I'm not going to eat that farm. It's really better for the environment. What they're doing is better than overfishing or just lining up for at the end of the spawn to, to take all the salmon you know what i mean like they're farming them correctly making them more affordable and making them consistent and disease free i'm a big proponent for farming fish as long as you're doing it the right way and i think that there are so many people who are doing it the right way now so hypothetical president puts you in charge of fish and game agriculture somewhere in there puts you in charge of it what are you changing to the fishing industry to make it more sustainable increase the longevity of it First of all, I would let us fish in our own. So our the when we got to Boston, those there's cod in the harbor right there, but we're bringing in cod from Iceland. We're not even using our own resources that we have here. I mean, that first I would yeah I would start with new regulations on what we do. I go to Lake Erie twice a week to pick up uh, walleye and perch, and part of the season you can only get it from Canada. Part of the season you can get it from so i get in sandusky but they have to catch it on the canadian side and bring it over and it's the same water that walleye doesn't know he's in canada he doesn't know he's in in ohio 
there's a lot of things that we can do with regulations that don't make sense right now. That would be step one. I mean, I guess as far as fish farming, they are kind of doing it right now. They're subsidizing people to open these farms. And the like shellfish is great for for uh, the health of the of the ocean. The more we farm their filters, I mean, they're all the bivalves, they filter water in and out. So these huge uh, oyster farms and huge mussel farms are subsidizing because it's cleaning the waters, which is, I mean, I think is great. We, we have a long way to go. And I don't think, unfortunately, greed kind of takes over for everything. It's now, now, now. They don't really care about the future. I've seen some people say that like they could put uh, basically like a stop, you know, against certain fish being fished, you know, whether it's salmon or cod or whatever for X number of years to try and get the populations back. Does that make sense? Does that seem like a good idea? I mean, obviously you have to either just enforce it or get people to subscribe to it, but. It does. And actually it's been proven in striped bass, which it was uh, 20 years ago or 25 years ago, they limited it by a lot on sizing and on how much you could bring in. And we're, we've gotten back in 25 years now, they come, they came up with a, a tagging program where you, they're all gill tagged. So, you know, where it came from, what size, where it was checked in at. And uh, over the last, yeah, maybe five years, we've seen such an influx of uh, healthy, full-size striped bass now that it's come back. They're trying to do that with bluefin tuna now as well. Like the the populations are coming back by limiting how much we bring in. The, the problem is you can only control what's right around your your country there. It's a free-for-all. It's hard to, to uh, enforce anything globally. Is there a fish that you refuse to deal with, refuse to sell, or just either you don't like it or just... <laughs> I, don't, I don't sell tilapia. I just think it's disgusting. <laughs> yeah, people ask for it. But it's just that nobody raises it correctly. And like they're, kind of, they're just bottom feeders. And they a lot of places are so packed in, they're eating each other's shit. And I'm like, it's not what I want to promote here. When COVID kind of happens... Did you think like that was going to be kind of the end with all the restaurants being shut down and everything? And just like, that was it. That was going to take you under too. It was, I mean, it would have taken us down. We instantly pivoted to home delivery. I don't know how we probably do $35,000 a week in wholesale business. There was, I had four employees. Then the shutdown happened. We went from that to zero. We had no orders, $0, no orders at all. Or, but we still had access to all this fish and we had, four vehicles and four guys, four refrigerated vehicles and four guys. So we were like, my brother-in-law is a tech guy. He made a little order thing on a website for us to, to do home delivery. And I mean, by the second week, we were doing 300 home deliveries. You don't make the kind of money that you make on a restaurant with big orders. And it's a lot more work, but we were, we were keeping our head above water. We all still had jobs. And it was throughout that we've gained so much support through the community by doing that. When that's kind of when the North Market thing fell in my lap, we had so much good karma through the community that we took that over. We took it over in the middle of the pandemic and people still supported us, which was I thought was pretty incredible (laughs) in a very strange time. Is the like the seafood stimulus packages, I think is what they were called. Is that something that you guys plan on bringing back in the future? Are you guys still doing that or? I mean, we still do it to a to an extent. We probably only do ten a week or something. That people they want to get out of the house now. But we still have. We'll see the same names week after week. That just I mean, whether it's because they're in 
Granville or Delaware or something that's not convenient to to drive to one of our stands, we'll we'll bring their stuff to them. But a lot of times they're they have their set menu that they and they get their seafood from us. They get their I mean Yellowbird Food Shed brings their vegetables to them, and we it's kind of cool. I mean we have a really good community of people here. We're a nice big city that still has a small town feel to it. I think I love Columbus. Is that something that you think you guys could expand on in the future if you wanted to? Yeah, and I and right now we're it's hard to take on the Hello Freshes and the Blue Aprons of the world, but we're trying right now. We're in the process of of coming up with a take and bake meals that we would you drop off to your house and then yeah, however many you want two portions, four portions, whatever, with instructions and everything you need to do. I think that's kind of the next progression into that, where if we want to go head to head with them, we could do that with just seafood items. But yeah, that's kind of the, that's in the works right now. Your first location, the downtown North Market, your stall, I believe, opened September 11th, uh, 2020 in the middle of a pandemic. So never forget. If you needed like a bad luck omen, uh, I would say that day and then the the middle of the pandemic probably not the best best one to choose but that was always like a goal of yours going back to kind of the early days right it was actually open up a physical presence oh yeah yeah i mean i always especially in the north market i adore that place it's i mean i st- it's still a magical place to me when i walk in there and i as a kid going in there and then i i supplied the fish guys seafood for forever i mean i uh yeah i always wanted to be that guy i wanted to be the face there that people come in and talk to about about fish it was unfortunate circumstances for him with the pandemic but it was just kind of in when i was going up he was going down and we kind of met in the middle there which i still i mean i feel bad for how it went down for him we didn't i never planned on even going into the downtown north market i had already been accepted into the bridge park and i had already started paying into that for the build out and that's the world stopped in the middle of that I spent my entire life savings on building the stand up there. Everything was, yeah, on pause. And then they said, well, the fish guy downtown is going to be gone. Do you want to be, do you want to take over that spot too? And with no hesitation, we moved in two days later and fired it up. So you weren't worried at all about like the potential for food markets like that or food halls to almost, I don't want to say go away entirely, but definitely be a pullback on people going into those places. Oh yeah. I mean, and we still haven't seen the full potential or if there still is potential for that. I mean, I I talked to the other vendors and that we're still not back to pre-pandemic levels that might never, may never happen again. The good thing about what we do is I'm the wholesaler. So we're buying directly from, we're not buying from a secondhand person. So our margins are great because we're not, we're not paying it. Well, so we should always survive on that we might, we might have less people and less offerings, but I don't see us not surviving. Let's put it that way. I just, yeah. I mean, we can see the convention center from our door at downtown and there's nothing going on. Like we, we're just now starting to see some conventions again. So if I can sell a couple hundred lobster rolls a week to these guys, then we'll be doing great. Was there a big challenge with renovating the, the downtown space? Did you have to do much to it? It was a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's still, we're, it's just one step at a time. It's been an expensive, there was years of neglect down there. <laughs> yeah. What's the biggest issue to overtake? Is it just, just because it's an older building? So like, you know, electrical and plumbing and stuff or? Yeah, that's part of it. I mean, a lot of it is just uh, equipment that the guy before the fish guys, they, he set some of that equipment in 1994 and it's really never been maintained since then. So I'm either 
replacing one thing at a time or getting it worked on. When the times were good there, they weren't uh, keeping up on their maintenance. So then I think it was like two months after the downtown location opened, the Bridge Park location opened, and everybody kind of projected carry out was going to be the dominant thing. Was it as dominant as you expected? In Dublin, at Bridge Park, no. I've, we joke all the time that the pandemic didn't happen in Bridge Park. Like those people, they were ready to come out and spend money, and we were there for it. There was only four places open in the beginning: us, the bar, the uh, taco place, and then the uh, reusable place at the other end. We had all done what we were supposed to do and spent the money, and we're ready to open. So the people who own that development, Crawford Knowing, they said, "Fire away! Let's see what happens." I mean. People, they did carry out drinks and we did, yeah, lobster rolls and a handful of fresh fish up there. It was better than we expected it to be in the beginning up there. We had tempered expectations, obviously, with the the pandemic, but it was better than we thought it would be there and still continues to be. Now, I know you originally, I think, wanted to open an oyster bar, but you recently put like an oyster counter in. Is that your oyster bar, essentially, or do you still want to do like a standalone? I'm still going to do one. (laughs) I want a, a dive bar. I want a, a shithole with a PBR and whiskey and oysters where you, they, where you sit around and talk trash to the... <laughs> it's like a, a typical New England oyster bar where the shucker sits there and talks to you and you're... Yeah, I would love that scene. I don't know if it's still around. I know there used to be a place in Boston where like you could get basically like a bucket of like oysters or whatever and they would kind of let you like shuck them yourself. I think, I, I don't know if it's still around though. Probably. I can't imagine they let people do it anymore just because too many people probably stab themselves, but. Exactly. I was going to say, that sounds like a liability. With your business model, as we kind of touched on fish numbers go down, prices go up, tack on inflation, gas, transportation, all that stuff. Is seafood really becoming just a market price item, like all its own? And that's all you're going to see on the menus is just the MK next to it if it's on there? I sure hope not. But I I mean, that's kind of the way it looks. Let's say in the last three months, shipping alone has gone up four times what it was at the beginning of the year. And it's not looking any better. I don't really get into the politics of any of it, but I I don't see any end in sight. And I don't know what the answer is. I mean, I, I sure hope we don't get to a market price for everything kind of thing. Have you seen during this time period, some restaurants pull back on, on seafood orders? I have. And a lot of it is because it doesn't travel as well as a pork chop or so the carryout business. Some of these Italian restaurants that I work with, they people still are just getting carryout now because it was so successful. But I mean, a, yeah, a piece of fish doesn't travel as well as a, a hearty uh, steak or that kind of thing. So I have seen... They pulled back on it, and it wasn't necessarily price prohibitive. People will pay for a good pay for a good steak. They'll pay for a good piece of seafood. Any worry that like lab grown fish might eventually subplant and become kind of the the majority market share? I know there's that place like out in Virginia that they were doing like uh, lab grown sushi and stuff. Yeah, I've seen a little bit of that. The I think the stigma of it will never catch on as much as much as they would like it to. I guess for a sustainability thing, I wouldn't mind if some of it trickles its way in here. I'm I think what I more not worried about but more intrigued with is like a plant-based versions of everything now. You have plant-based burgers of all sorts now. There's plant-based caviar you get now that I'm, I'm interested to see and I'm on board with it. I'll if it's seafood related also meat <laughs> seafoodless seafood. Has anybody gotten into 
plant-based seafood yet? There, Yeah, there's places out there that are doing a bunch of, on smaller scale, but like the burgers, they're kind of, that's the easy way where you can hide, you can hide everything and make it still taste good. Just mix it into a burger. The burgers aren't bad. They're not. People like kind of look at me crazy, but like the Beyond Whopper tastes pretty much like a Whopper. Said the exact same thing. I agree 100%. I haven't had the McDonald's one yet. I think they use the other company. What is it? It's Beyond Meat and then what? Impossible. Yeah. You know, so much of the restaurant industry has always kind of been built off of taking, you know, the unwanted ingredient, making it popular, chicken wings, brisket, some types of fish. Is there kind of a next, you know, quote unquote trash fish that you think will be the next big thing? Um, I mean, I saw a lot of monkfish, which is cooks up like lobster and it's very cheap. So I try to get people on board with it. It's just ugly as hell. So people don't want to give it a chance. That's one that if you've never tried a monkfish, it's yeah, it cuts and eats like lobster, which speaking of trash that no one ever wanted and now it's outrageously expensive. <laughs> it's lobster, but that's kind of the, uh, they catch it locally all along every coastal area around Boston. They catch monkfish. I mean, it's a, yeah, it's, it's very, it's, it's a very good trash fish. A lot of fish comes packed in like styrofoam boxes with kind of the sustainability angle. Is there any potential use for that stuff? I know that's actually a big deal because the majority of it used to. There's a lot of people that are switching over now to some more recyclable stuff like that. But uh, yeah, I mean, it still is a big deal right now that we're wasting way too much in the shipping process. There's a, a balance between you want to keep stuff uh, at the right temperature, but you also want to not create a whole bunch of landfill. So there are companies that are doing that out at the Boston Seafood Show. There was a bunch of yeah, recyclable. And then then it becomes cost prohibitive. It's just it's such a, a catch-22. Do you want a fish to cost more or do you want it, do you want it to stay at temperature? Or do you want to have this wasted product here? The thing is, we, we reuse all of our uh, stuff. I mean, people come in. They'll say they're from Dayton or whatever. Oh, we'd love to get some. We'd love to get some fish. We just have a long drive. And we're like, we keep all of our styrofoams. We'll pack it nice and send them with a cooler. I mean, it's not saving the world by any means, but it's one step reusing it at least. At that seafood show, what was kind of the closest thing or the thing that piqued your interest most that would be able to kind of help with that problem? The coolest thing is they were using uh, old fishing nets there instead of. I mean, a lot of times they get cut loose and you see, you've seen all the horror stories of them stuck to everything. But yeah, they were paying fishermen to bring in their old plastic nets and making these, uh, yeah, they're like, I guess that would, they're kind of like a, uh, like a cardboard, but made from recyclable plastic that there's pockets in it. So it would stay insulated. It was pretty cool. I, I could see something like that catching on, but I don't know how supply wise, I don't know if you would ever have enough to to take over, you know what I mean? Yeah, you'd almost need to find a way for like even some of that stuff to be broken down into some sort of liquid plastic like that you could 3D print or something like that too as well. That's kind of, I think, like the next step is like figuring out a way to, because I mean, they do it with, you know, I think like Adidas does some stuff with like shoes made out of, you know, plastic bottles and stuff like that. So it's coming, but like you said, sustainability is such, and reusability is such like a, a cost prohibitive thing that Teslas, right? Like if you just look at the reusable thing, it's like most of the Teslas are priced to the point where like your average middle-class person can't afford to do that. So it doesn't, doesn't make sense. You know, how do you get it down to the point where it's economies of scale and like 
your average person can partake in the sustainability of it. Yeah, it almost seems counterproductive. To, if not everyone can afford to do it, then is it really helping? <laughs> Any thoughts about expanding to other cities in Ohio or or other parts of Columbus? Yeah, I mean, there's some stuff. We get offers, I mean, fairly regularly to go into different places. There's some developers that are looking to take advantage of people that I've learned. I'm, I'm learning so much that I never, I've been such a gullible and anybody who wants to, they tell me they want to help me out. And I'm like, yeah, let's do that. And then I'm starting to wise up to some of this now, but there, there, we have at least two things in the work right now that, I mean, I won't, I'm not going to speak on where they are yet, but there's at least two more in the works that we're very, that we're serious about right now. And there'll be more expanded menu. Like it'll be more food driven than it'll be fresh market driven. Sourcing from the West Coast, is that something that you plan to pursue to expand, you know, different offerings, both, you know, from your your shops, but also your wholesale business too? Yeah. So there's a place in Seattle that I get stuff from now. And the only way I do it to make it efficient is they fly it to Boston and it hits my truck there and comes to me instead of instead of air freighting it here. It makes more sense logistically and financially to do it that way. We don't sell a ton of West Coast anything. And that's that's more just because I like uh, we're closer to the East Coast. It's the easiest place to get fresher seafood from. I tell people we ask for West Coast oysters a lot. I'm like, well, you can look at these. You can look at the tag of these were harvested yesterday. I mean, it's going to take at least two to three days to get those from there to here. We're already going to be on our next round of oysters from the East Coast. We'll bring in some West Coast oysters occasionally, but I try to get everything I can from as close as possible. So it's cheaper and more efficient to put seafood on a plane, send it from Seattle to Boston, and then have that truck deliver it to Columbus than having it go from like Seattle to Chicago or something. Yeah. So then I'd have to get I mean, a separate yeah, trucking company out of Chicago or somebody to bring it here or go there and get it, which I could probably do that. I mean, we've done it in Philadelphia before. We used to have stuff. So there was a giant company there that was buying a bunch of stuff. So we would just tack on a little bit and then go grab it from them. I mean, we've put millions of miles on vehicles to try to make this work. <laughs> like th- there's, there's definitely things that the big companies that have their own trucking and have their own logistic teams they can do to make money on the stuff. My biggest thing is getting it as quickly as possible out of the ocean. I mean, I don't love paying more for everything than the big companies, but it's kind of just the price of doing business and I'm okay with it. My customers, they don't, they don't beat me down on price. They know what they're getting. The West Coast still, you know, there's purple sea urchins, which are like kind of almost an invasive species. So like there's an abundance of those out there. And I think like rockfish might even be like another thing that's pretty abundant. Do you think as you guys kind of expand to and you have to maybe look at increasing offerings that the West Coast network is something that you might try and flush out to see if it makes more sense? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, there's there's definitely stuff out there that I would like to have more uh, access to. And it's more of just going out there and figuring out who to get it from and how to get it here than it is. I mean, it's easier. You can drive to Boston in a day and then drive back the next day. It's, it's not as easy to get out there and walk the coast. What about like Canada or is just like the taxes and stuff? And we get a lot of stuff that comes in from Canada through into Boston. I mean, halibut. I mean, we even get lobster from up there. It becomes a problem when they will get caught up in customs. You'll commit to a X amount of halibut, then it gets caught up in customs and it takes 
two to three days to get it back out of there. And then what do you do at that point? I mean, I'd rather just buy from local guys knowing that it's already been tagged and it's in the States. So how has the food and restaurant industry in Columbus changed since, you know, you've been involved in it? Where do you think it needs to change and where do you think it's headed? Uh, I mean, it's been crazy the last couple of years, obviously, but I mean, I think that we are seeing an up an upturn in locally owned restaurants and locally sourced ingredients and that kind of stuff. That's, that's great. I mean, my biggest problem is the people that say that put the Ohio pride on their door, but aren't doing it aren't doing the things they're supposed to do. I'm not, I'm in a lot, enough kitchens to know that, that not everyone's doing it the way they tell you they're doing it. Let's put it that way. The problem is right now, people are buying up, companies are buying up all of this real estate and then they can hold you, they can charge whatever they want for you to go into it. A mom and pop can't afford to buy the building that they're going to start a restaurant anymore. You pretty much have to count on paying rent to somebody that owns this complex. And then you're kind of, you can't really build a, like what we would think of as like, your uh, generational restaurant where the kids now run it. It's, that's going to happen less and less. It's going to be more of your two to three year uh, really hot popular restaurant that burns out. You're going to see a bunch of flaming out really good concepts that it kind of sucks that they won't, will never build like they used to. It makes, uh, it makes it difficult to, yeah, to fall in love with a restaurant when it's going to be yeah so popular that you can't get into it and then it burns out or, that rent is going to force it out of where it's at. Do you think Columbus could sustain like a very focused seafood restaurant where 90% of the menu is seafood? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it could. There's a, a restaurant that I'm a part of in Upper Arlington that's probably about 70% seafood and it's stayed open for yeah five years through this through this mess. But yeah, there's a, there's a, I mean, I'm, I've been talking to another, a guy who owns a, a, place in Columbus too. I don't know if I should say his name, but he owns a, a place that does seafood very well. And he's entertaining a concept downtown. That's pretty much all seafood. I think I'm going to go in with him and, and do it, but there's a lot of opportunity out there. I don't know when to say no sometimes. So what's next for you guys, you know, professionally? I mean, obviously you want to do an oyster bar one day, possibly this seafood restaurant downtown's in the works too, but what else you guys got going on? Right now, it's kind of, uh, I mean, we're still in the infant stages of the retail. And I, I want to get a better grasp on what people want in Columbus. There's, it's just so wildly inconsistent at both places. I mean, one week, you'll, I'll bring in a bunch of halibut and no one wants halibut that week. And then the next week, everyone wants it. It's just, I got, I have to figure out, I only have a year's worth of data right now. So there, there's something that's driving this. I, I have to, uh, concentrate on making the retail markets more efficient for us and for the consumer. That's my, do, should we have more prepared things? Should we have more grab and go salads and or should we make more dips and seafood based stock and things that I have to figure out what, where the level is. I mean, I'm gung ho, bring in all the fresh fish and let's put it all on the ice. And then not everyone wants all that stuff. Oh crap. Now let's smoke it all. <laughs> you know I mean, I, I need to, that my next biggest thing is making those two fresh markets more yeah, efficient before I move on to, I mean, I'm definitely going to open an oyster bar at some point in the next um, five years, let's say, but making these run more efficiently is kind of my, this is my number one right now. Are you a Southern oyster or Northern oyster person? Northern oyster. I like, uh, I like them salty. 
like I'm very salty. <laughs> New Orleans a lot too. So all if those charbroiled oysters they do down there, they make those giant oysters into into something uh, very buttery and delicious. So I'll, I'm not going to hate on them too much down there. They they figured out how to make them appetizing. So this next question comes from Cole and Alexis Garside of Park Service Coffee, previous guests on the podcast. So they left behind a question. What are you doing to reduce your environmental impact and waste? So right now, yeah, with our food waste, I mean, we compost everything. We're actually in a in a in conversations with donating our fish scrap to a place that makes uh, dog and cat food. Uh, we're trying to get them to subsidize that with uh, the Humane Society or any kind of shelters. Whatever we're giving them, we want them to. If they're saving money from our, our scraps, I'd like to pass it on to the next whoever they're selling it to. I don't just want to give them free here. Go make all the money off of our scrap there. But a lot of time we use a lot of our scrap we use in-house as far as food waste. And yeah, our oyster shells, we all we compost all of them. They're ground into fertilizer. We don't we don't have a lot of trash. We don't have a lot of, of waste that goes out other than packaging, which is a huge deal. The park service coffee people, those people live like four doors down from me and don't know who I am. Oh, do they? Their little thing is parked down right down the road. I need to go introduce myself this summer. Yeah, they're usually uh, over at Seventh Sun during the week. They got ideas in the works too that are really cool. And their big thing is trying to figure out like not just get to the point where they to open a brick and mortar, but it's also about like sustainability and like reusable or like Alexis was talking about like, is there a way that we get it so like you could do glass instead of like paper and, and stuff like that. So, and plastic and, and all that stuff. So we use all paper bags, all recycled. We don't use any kind of styrofoam packaging for any of our, everything that we uh, send out, even from the kitchen, it's all in uh, reusable or, or recycled already, which, and, and it caught, honestly, it, it hurts the bottom line, but for being in seafood, I put at least amount of plastic back out into the ocean as I can. That's one thing I'm fairly serious about is that we don't, we won't use any kind of one-time plastic use stuff at either of our stands. What question do you want to leave behind for the next guest? can be anything. Hmm. I'm not allowed to know who it is. No, nah, that's kind of the fun of it. Sometimes I also don't know who it is. So. <laughs> oh, no. But it's all its going to be a, a foodie person, right? I mean, it's- Somebody attached to, yeah, the food industry in some way, yeah. Are they local? Is it going to be a local person or are they in a different city? It just depends. All right. Well, I mean, I guess... One of my really good friends, Stefan from Oreos, I know you've talked to those guys. I'm trying to figure out how to catch lightning in a bottle like they did without reinventing the wheel. They made really good cheesesteaks with just really good ingredients because it wasn't even marketing. It was just by doing it the right way. I'm, I'm like mind blowing how they caught on so fast. It was like word of mouth for them, really. It was a big chunk of it. It's so awesome. I'm so proud of them. I would ask them when they look into their pantry or into their walk in do they see things that are helping their community or their their city are you seeing items that are helping other small businesses in in the city that you're in or do you see a bunch of gfs bags and cisco bags you know what i mean that will make me happy if somebody if they can look in and they see a farmer's hard work or a local bakery that they get their pies from that that kind of thing this question comes from one of our listeners what fish would you recommend to someone who didn't grow up eating seafood and didn't have access to it regularly? So like what fish would you recommend for them to like start getting into seafood? Yeah, I mean like a light flaky cod, a walleye 
is pretty much, it'll taste like whatever you do to it. I mean, it really doesn't have a distinct taste. That's kind of why the Midwestern, <laughs> they've caught on to the walleye. No matter where you put it at, it'll sell out because it's kind of that, it doesn't taste fishy. I don't say fishy is a negative term either. I mean, fishy, a grouper tastes fishy because it's a fish and it has its own taste. A halibut tastes its own fishy. I mean, you wouldn't describe a steak as steaky. So I don't use fish as a, I don't use fishy as a bad word. So this next set of questions we asked everybody who comes on the podcast, nice compare and contrast across all the episodes. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your career thus far? I mean, it's a handful of chefs, but uh, a guy named Justin Watring I met when I started doing this and he's kind of been a, he's helped me get into restaurants and he's helped, helped me a lot. I mean, there's a, there's a handful of chefs, Rick Lopez, and at, he has a couple of restaurants in Columbus. They've kind of helped me uh, guide my way through through what I do. I mean, too many to list, but those those two guys have been a big part of what I've done. Restaurant that you'd recommend that isn't your own? Uh, La Tavla in Granville, a hidden gym. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurants, a place you haven't been to that you want to go to and place you haven't eaten at that you'd be interested in, in eating at. I definitely want to go to Scotland. Not just because I did a 23andMe and found out uh, from that area, <laughs> but there's, I like scotch and I like salmon and they do a lot of really, really good salmon farming in Scotland, those cold, clean waters. Yeah, that, that's bucket list place I want to travel to. The a restaurant I like to eat at, which I think I'm actually going to get to, uh, Leon's in Charleston, the uh, oyster bar there. Everyone tells me I have to go to. I'll get back to you and let you know if it was a have to go to. <laughs> Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything that you know is terrible for you, but you just can't stay away from, whether it's fast food or candy or anything? Yeah, gummy bears. On my front seat of my car, my delivery vans, gummy bears or gummy anything. Are you Habro or Albanese? Oh, Albanese for sure. That seems to be usually anybody that comes up. It's, it's Albanese, yeah. Favorite fish to eat? or work with? Mm, halibut's probably my favorite fish to eat. Uh, favorite fish to work with? I, we process a lot of snapper and grouper. And it's, I mean, I love a clean American red snapper. That's, they're cool to work with. They look so nice and they're fun to fillet and fun to work with. Favorite Instagram account you follow? Mm, favorite Inst- <laughs> Is this a loaded question? Is this Spoon Mob? I always like to get recommendations on like you know, like uh episode we did recently, like Silas, Kate and over at the locks, it was like the fish butchery, which I think is like a place in like Australia or something that they do like weird stuff with fish. That was a great account. I personally, the one I've probably most interested in following is talk. And just because you learn about new restaurants and stuff that way, where they're kind of always promoting anybody within their ecosystem. Okay. Yeah. I guess I'll have to follow them. I, yeah. I love fish butchery. I mean, I follow a lot of I guess uh, one I really love is yeah, uh, Pike Place, the Seattle Fish Market. I mean, that's probably my favorite follow. That just looks like a blast to work there. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. Not everybody is. If you were moment episode scene about him that stands out to you, if you weren't, is there another kind of like food TV personality that you always kind of gravitated towards? I wasn't as into the foodie scene through the Anthony Bourdain. I do. I enjoy watching him now. I, I don't have a, like a standout moment or anything like that i mean i enjoy kind of the cheesier like the chop shows i i enjoy seeing a lot of times i like just seeing regular people cooking and seeing what they can like people that aren't famous that i like seeing them go on these shows and make amazing things my buddy 
Jack Moore from that was he was the chef at Watershed. He got to go on that Beat Bobby Flay show, and it's just it's cool to see people that I know can cook, but they just have never gotten the chance to cook for people on TV. I like that kind of stuff from a, from watching a a Food Network type thing. I guess I don't I don't have one person that I watch just for that person, but there's yeah, I like those kind of shows where regular people get to impress. Where can people find you? Social media, website, plug everything. All right, yeah, I mean. Instagram is at Coastal Local Seafood. Our website, CoastalLocalSeafood.com or Coast2LocalMarket.com or uh, OystersAndAlcohol.com, which is our uh, our line of shirts that have taken off that <laughs> we can't keep in stock right now. So those will all take you to our website conglomerate of what we do. We kind of do everything, wholesale, retail, home delivery, catering, whatever you need. We're, we're your seafood one-stop shop. And then your locations, those are open Tuesday through Sunday? Uh, Bridge Park is open seven days a week. Uh, downtown is open Tuesday through Sunday. Yeah, with uh, we, we're open till seven downtown. We're open, it kind of varies in Dublin, but we're open later in Dublin every night than we are downtown. We do pretty much the same thing at both locations. Smaller scale of fresh in Bridge Park, more fine dining specials than downtown. Downtown's kind of like your your fish market and uh, dive bar feel there. We make good stews and soups and that kind of stuff downtown or greasy sandwiches. <laughs> Up north, we do more caviar and mignonettes. <laughs> and then if people, uh, restaurant owners want to get in touch with you about wholesale or people want to sign up for the home delivery thing, go to the website. Yeah. Or I mean, Ian at coastallocalseafood.com is my email. I still handle every wholesale account. I do all the ordering, do all the delivering. I'm who you need to talk to for restaurant orders. I mean, if you have anything else, send it to yeah, you can send it through the website or send it to me and I'll I'll get you in touch with the right person for what you're looking for. It's great to see us have dedicated seafood purveyor, somebody who cares about sustainability and and how it's caught and where it's caught from and being as fresh as possible and and all that stuff. And you know, I've had some of the food, fish and chips is it's on point. It's really good. Uh, I missed out on the fish sandwich special you guys did the other weekend, but I'm sure it'll be back around. But definitely plan on making it in for uh, Oyster Happy Hour here at some point too as well, because I know you guys do that too. But it's really good food that you guys are, are coming up with too. And anybody ever asked me like, where can I get fish? I mean, I point them your way because we used to kind of get some stuff from like Whole Foods, but the quality just dropped off a cliff with you know their fish and stuff like that too so it's definitely the place to go to if you're in need of any sort of fish or seafood for sure well i appreciate that yeah i mean we've got a lot of whole food converts that come in now i don't know what they did but uh something in their supply chain fell off because damn jeff bezos buying it that's what happened (laughs) yeah if you guys ever need anything from us um, feel free to reach out we always want to support everybody comes on the podcast as much as we can can I ask you what your background is? I mean, are you a restaurant owner or a foodie or just a foodie? Um, you know, me and my wife kind of travel around for food and and stuff like that. She kind of got me into it when we first started dating, and and then I kind of have tendency to deep dive into whatever you know I kind of get into. So it kind of expanded from there, and and then we were traveling, and we kind of did some touristy things. We were in Singapore one time and it was just kind of like, why was this always on the thing of like things you should do, but it, it wasn't a great experience. And and so I started kind of writing like a, a travel guide that actually showed you kind of stuff that you should avoid or, you know, don't go here, go there kind of thing and built a website, 
wasn't sure, you know, if you get it published, how much of that's out of date. And then the website started paring it down and editing and it kind of started focusing on the food and we were building all our trips around where we could get restaurant reservations and stuff like that. And, and then was doing research, you know, on, on different chefs at some of our favorite restaurants. And there was always competing research on if this person actually worked here or they went to school here or whatever, and started having people on a podcast that put stuff in their own words. And, and now it's turned into this. Nice. Well, I uh, want to tell you, thanks for uh, calling out the uh, lists that, the other day. I surprisingly got a lot of feedback from that, and that was not the purpose, and I was not expecting that, but I had a lot of messages, so that was nice to at least know I wasn't crazy. I mean, it's all, yeah, it's so subjective anyways, and there was, whatever, I mean, we could go on about that for days, but thank you for calling them out. (laughs) I try not to wade too far into the controversial stuff. I mean, it's great that, like, some people are, like, underrepresented, got shout-outs, but if you're going to make a list, like, you have to establish, like, the criteria and there just wasn't any. And it was like, the link comes up as best and then it switches to essential. And there's only 28 of them. It's an odd number. What were your criteria? How long was the person here? Were they even here? Or were they taking recommendations from somebody that they know that lives here? Like, you don't know. I mean, it's all a grain of salt, but it's like, unfortunately, there's people in Columbus that would live and die by the probably that list coming out. I mean, a lot of times I think it hurts our scene because some of the places that were on there, I'm like, that's not even the, they don't are even the best at what they do in town here. Like that stuff bothers me. And it's the same with some of these magazines. If you don't advertise with them, you'll never see one of these lists. You know what I mean? Like you have to have a, a full page ad. And then all of a sudden you make their 10 places you need to see the spring. But yeah, I appreciate you coming on and, and finally getting able to do this and got to nerd out on seafood, which is always fun for me because I'm a big seafood person. So nice to hear some. Yeah, you, you definitely knew your stuff. Yeah, I'm sure we'll be seeing you soon at one of the locations. Probably the Bridge Park. I like the Bridge Park location a little bit. I like, you know, we go to different cities and we've gone to a couple like little food halls that are relatively new. And it's just like Bridge Park kind of reminds me of that. I just wish Bridge Park was a little bit bigger and it had more more vendors in there. The North Park, I mean, I like the North Park one downtown, but something about the way the layout is for Bridge Park is just, it feels easier. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's definitely things that I like about both of them. Bridge Park has kind of more of a, a corporate food hall feel to it, but it's nice and clean and it's easy to navigate. Downtown's kind of like everything crammed in this, <laughs> in this space here, but it's kind of endearing. If they actually ever follow through with the North Market Tower, like that's going to mess stuff up too. This is going to be a nightmare. We'll, let's do another about this in three years. <laughs> sure, not a problem, but appreciate it. Um, let me know if you have anything, but I'll hit you up when this comes out. We'll see you soon. Thanks, man. I'll see ya. Again, a big thanks to Ian for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of one of his afternoons in between kind of fish shipments, talking about his career and everything that they got going on with Coastal Locals. So again, follow them on Instagram at Coastal Local Seafood. Check out their website too as well, coastallocalmarket.com. Um, you can reach out to them directly if you want to know anything about bringing seafood into your restaurant or business, or if you're interested in the home delivery that they do too as well can find both their retail locations at the North Market. The newest one is the North Market Bridge Park up in Dublin, uh, and then the original North Market downtown in the Short North Arts District. But they're pretty much open like six, seven days a week. I think the downtown North Market's now open seven days a week. But they have oysters, you know, lobster rolls, shrimp rolls, po'boys, fish and chips, which I've had a, a bunch of times. It's a they do like a cornmeal breading too as well. So it's a lot lighter than if it was like a beer battered or a deep fried or something like that too. So 
Make sure to follow us on Instagram at SpoonMob. Check out our website too as well. You can reach us through the website, SpoonMob.com. Make sure you follow, subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. If you're new, welcome. If you've been here for a while, appreciate you continuing to listen. Continue to help spread the word whenever you can. And we're growing and it's awesome. And we got more cool stuff on the way. So appreciate everybody. And we will talk to you guys next week on Thursday.